from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 12. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I'm a member of Christ by faith, and I share in his anointing, so that I may as prophet confess his name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you a Christian? I hope we can all answer that question with a resounding yes. But do you know what it means to be a Christian? Some view Christians as those who go to church and who live generally decent lives. But that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. To understand what a Christian is, we need to understand who Jesus Christ is. Currently in our catechism preaching, we are working our way through the articles of the Apostles' Creed. We're discussing the names of God's only Son, Last time we saw that he is called Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. Today we focus on why Jesus is called the Christ. The name Christ refers not to Jesus' personal name, but to his formal title. The name Christ means the anointed one. In the Old Covenant, God appointed men to leadership positions in Israel Often their call to service involved anointing, the pouring of a special oil on their heads. The prophet would announce that the person anointed with oil had been called by God to serve as either prophet or as priest or as king. And often the people anointed with this oil showed signs that the Spirit of God had come upon them. Thus anointing is symbolic both of a person's call to office and of their qualification, their equipping for office. Jesus is called the Christ because he is God's anointed one, the one who is called and equipped to be our Redeemer. This afternoon we'll examine what it means that Christ was anointed as prophet, priest, and king. We'll consider how he fulfilled his office perfectly, redeeming us from our sins and misery. It has consequences for our lives, for we are Christians. We bear Christ's name. We also share in his anointing. We've been called to serve as God's representatives on this earth. 
and we've also been equipped to do so. For God has given us his spirit to help us fulfill our calling. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. It is by the spirit of God that we share in Christ's anointing. The spirit helps us as prophets to confess Christ's name, as priests to live thankful lives, and as kings to fight against sin. Jesus is called the Christ, the Messiah, because he'd been appointed by God to serve as our Redeemer. It raises the question, how and when was Christ anointed? Can you think of a time in the Gospel accounts when this happened? We do not read of Jesus being anointed in the traditional way by having a prophet pour oil over his head. Yet the Gospels show how John the Baptist came as a forerunner of Christ. He heralded the coming of Israel's king, the promised Messiah. Not only that, but John also served in Jesus' official call to serve as the Christ. The last part of Luke 3 speaks about Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Normally, baptism signified the need for a washing from sins. But in Jesus' case, his baptism served as his anointing to office. It's clear from what happened as Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. It shows that Jesus was not only called, but also anointed to serve as our Redeemer. Confirmation was given from heaven itself. God spoke, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Some may question whether or not Jesus' baptism really served as his ordination to office. But the following verse of Luke's Gospel confirms that it is. It states, When Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. The Lord Jesus also made it plain early in his ministry that he had been anointed to serve as our Redeemer. We read together from Luke 4 about Jesus preaching in the synagogue of Nazareth. He quoted from Isaiah's prophecy saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And when when the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Thus Jesus himself also speaks of his anointing by the Spirit to serve in the task of redeeming his people. Jesus served in a threefold role as prophet, priest, and king. In him we see the offices common in the Old Covenant coming together in one person. We deal first with Jesus' role as our prophet. In our reading from Luke 4, Jesus made clear his prophetic role to the people in the synagogue of Nazareth. Jesus came into this world to preach good news to the poor, to publicly announce that he had come to bring freedom for captives. Our catechism summarizes Jesus' prophetic task as follows. He is our chief prophet and teacher, was fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. In the New Testament, God's plan to save his people through Christ's death and resurrection 
is often referred to as a mystery. In Romans 16.25, Paul speaks about the gospel and the preaching about Christ being the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, Paul says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The telling of the gospel is making plain the story of salvation, which God determined to accomplish in a dramatic way. The Israelites thought that the Messiah would deliver them from the Romans by establishing his kingdom on earth. They were looking for a king to rule over them and the surrounding nations. They wanted God to grant them another golden age as they experienced in the time of David and Solomon. They wanted to be a dominant world power and to experience the peace and prosperity that their forefathers had once enjoyed. But God knew Israel's real problem was not being a small nation under the rule of foreign kings. Their real problem was that they were sinful people and that their sins had estranged them from him. Before the foundation of the world, God determined to save his people from their sins by sending his son to die for them on the cross. Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, and thus free us from the dominion of sin and Satan. During his ministry, a big part of Christ's task was to preach good news to the poor and liberty to captives. As our prophet, he revealed to us the way of salvation, that we could only be saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose to grant us new life in him. Today, we are commonly known as Christians. We're called Christians because people see us as followers of Jesus Christ. Yet our catechism explains that being a Christian involves a little bit more than that. It asks, why are you called a Christian? And the answer is, because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing. The answer continues by outlining our task as prophets, priests, and kings. See, beloved, Jesus was not the only one appointed to a task and equipped to do it. What does it mean when the Catechism says that we share in Christ's anointing? Well, the point is that just as the Holy Spirit came upon Christ at his baptism, So the Holy Spirit was also given to the church. Before he went into heaven, Jesus commanded the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift that the Father had promised them. He said, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 2 tells us about how the Holy Spirit was poured forth on the church on the day of Pentecost. He equipped the believers in the early church to preach the gospel and to live their faith, even in the face of opposition and persecution. The question we face is, how do we share in the gift of the Spirit? 
How do we know that we've been anointed by the Spirit and equipped to serve as Christians? The Apostle John deals with these questions in a reading from 1 John 2. He says in 1 John 2 verse 20, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. This anointing is something that believers have as a permanent possession, as a lasting gift. For John writes in verse 27 of our text, The anointing which you have received from him remains in you. The point is that the Holy Spirit has come to make his home in us. Through his mighty work in us, he makes known to us the truth of the gospel. He brings us to a living faith in Jesus Christ. Part of our task as Christians is to serve as Christ's prophets. We are his ambassadors, his spokespeople. We've been mandated to confess Christ's name. When Paul addressed persecuted believers in the early church, he called them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then he told them that as Christians, they were to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, beloved, your unbelieving neighbors, school or workmates or friends are never going to come to faith by simply observing how you live. They may notice what they consider some peculiar things about your lifestyle. That you don't curse or swear or gamble or get drunk. That you won't live together with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage. And that you're faithful to your spouse in marriage. That you're honest in your dealings and hardworking. They may observe that you go to church. But it doesn't mean that they will understand why you live that way. They may admire you for certain aspects of your lifestyle, but will also think that other aspects of it are strange. They may even ridicule you for them. They simply don't understand what it means to be a Christian because they don't understand who Jesus Christ is or what he has done. To them, the gospel remains a mystery. It's something hidden. It's something they simply don't get. It's why each one of us needs to learn to confess Christ in our lives. We confess Christ when we sing and when we pray. We do it when we speak with each other about Christ and the difference he makes in our lives. But we also need to learn to do that with those who do not share the faith. There's lots of different ways to start a conversation. So many people are lost. They're living in fear and hurt and shame. They don't understand that sin is the root cause of all their problems in life. They don't know that Christ came to redeem us from our sins and to free us from the mastery of Satan. 
So we need to explain what it means to be a Christian. My grade 11 and 12 catechism students have learned about how to do that over the past few months. Please ask them to give a short explanation of the gospel message. They really need the practice. But beloved, it's not only they who need to be confident in sharing the gospel. Often we're ashamed or we're afraid to share the gospel with others. But remember, Christ tells us, whoever confesses him before men, he will confess before the Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies him before men, he will deny before his Father on the final day. Peter encourages us as Christians not to fear the ridicule or the oppression of the world. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. God has given us a great treasure. We don't always realize that or appreciate it. But God has saved us from hell by revealing the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Never be ashamed of the gospel or of who you are as a Christian. Instead, with gentleness and respect, share the riches that you have with anyone who crosses your pathway in life. Perhaps you're thinking, I don't know how, or I'm not really good with words. Remember, beloved, you have been anointed with the Spirit. He will guide you in what to say. Just begin the conversation. He will give you the words you need to say. In our first point, we've considered our anointing as Christ's representative so we can serve as prophets. In our second point, we'll see how the Spirit helps us as priests to live thankful lives. The Lord Jesus was also anointed to the office of priest. A priest is basically a mediator. A priest stands in the gap between God and his people. His task is to bridge that gap so that we can be reconciled to God. So that the huge chasm caused by our sins can be bridged. So that we can enjoy fellowship with God again. So how did priests in the Old Covenant make things right between the people and God? Well, they offered sacrifices and prayers to God on behalf of the people. In the Old Covenant, Aaron and his son served as Israel's priests. They did so at the tabernacle and later on at the temple. There was a prescribed way in which God's people could offer sacrifices. The priests would bring them before the Lord, confessing the people's sins and seeking forgiveness for them. They would offer intercessory prayer. At the end of the service, they pronounced that peace had been restored by blessing the people in God's name. Jesus served in the role of priest during his earthly ministry. He's not just any priest. Our catechism calls him our only high priest. The letter to the Hebrews deals extensively with Christ's priesthood. 
It shows his great superiority over all the other priests in Aaron's line. Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Christ served as our high priest when he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. He bore the punishment that we deserved in order to redeem us from our sins. Christ paid the price for us. He suffered God's wrath against our sins so we could be set free from them. And that's not all that Christ has done as our high priest. His priestly role continued when he went up into heaven. Christ now serves as our mediator at the Father's right hand. When we pray, he intercedes for us. He pleads on our behalf, reminding the Father of the price he has paid to ransom us. As Christians, as members of Christ by faith, We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit so that today we might also serve as priests. As priests, we are not required to present any kind of sacrifice to make payment for our sins. Christ has done that perfectly and completely. God desires a different kind of sacrifice from us. It's that I may offer myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In 1 Peter 2, Peter speaks about how we are to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God still expects us to offer sacrifices of thankfulness to him. To show him how grateful we are for Christ's saving work. So what does God ultimately want from you? He wants your heart and your life. That's what it means to offer your life as a spiritual sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Well, practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, if you're truly thankful for Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, you will strive to live a holy life. You won't get drunk. You won't swear. You won't have sex before you get married or with someone who's not your husband or wife. You won't cheat on your taxes by not declaring income you've earned or by claiming personal expenses as business expenses. Why won't we do these things? Because Christ lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Because we're temples of God, and our heart's desire is to live our lives to his glory. Because in all the things of daily life, we want to show how thankful we are that Christ has died on the cross for all our sins. 
It brings us to our final point. You know, consider how the Holy Spirit helps us to fight, helps us as kings to fight against sin. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah caused a lot of conflict in Israel, particularly with the religious leaders. Their expectation of the Messiah was that he would come as a mighty king, who would lead a revolt against the Romans and so deliver God's people from their enemies. They were looking for a powerful ruler to reestablish Israel as a dominant nation in world affairs. Jesus did not come to establish that kind of kingdom on earth. He refused to take down Rome of his day. He taught the people to respect the governing authorities, to pay taxes to whomever taxes are due. Yet in his own way, Jesus showed that he, has, he had come as Israel's king. Near the end of his ministry, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people recognized him as the Messiah. They praised God with the words of Psalm 118 saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Ultimately, it was Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited king, that got him crucified. Christ was condemned by the Sanhedrin because he agreed with the high priest's statement that he was the Christ, the Son of God. He was mocked and reviled because of his claim to be Israel's king. The soldiers dressed him up as a king. They put a, thro a, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And then they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The sign on the cross over Jesus' head read, The King of the Jews. The mistake the Jewish leaders made was that they thought that Christ's kingship was of this world. Christ's kingship is not a physical kingship, it's spiritual. Christ's battle was not to stand up with the Jews against the Romans. His battle was against Satan and all his evil forces. And Christ did so by offering his life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. It's through that act that Christ conquered sin and Satan. Today, Christ rules as our eternal king from the throne at God's right hand. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He governs this world by his mighty hand. By his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. The main way in which Christ exercises his kingship is through his word and through his Holy Spirit. These are the means he uses to call people to repentance and life, to bring them as citizens into his kingdom. It's also through his word and spirit that Christ continues to govern us, to help us to stand strong in our spiritual battle. Today, as Christians anointed with the Holy Spirit, we're called to serve as kings. And the point is not that we need to establish a Christian nation where all citizens will honor Christ as Lord. Instead, we're called to be involved in a spiritual battle against sin and the devil. Christ needs to be king, to be ruler over our hearts and lives. 
By the power of his spirit, we need to submit our lives to the direction he has given us in his word. Practically speaking, what does that mean? It means that we need to fight against the sinful desires of our flesh and the temptations of the evil one. That instead of giving in to the ways of sin, we take a stand against it. In Romans 6, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Instead, he calls us to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Paul makes it clear, sin should no longer have dominion over us since we live under grace. So we see how we are to fight the good fight of the faith until we inherit eternal life. Beloved, we've seen how Christ has called us to serve as prophets and priests and kings. We look at the task in front of us. It's immense. It can be daunting. Yet we should not be scared. We don't have to do this in our own strength. We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He lives in our hearts He is the one who equips us, who enables us to fulfill our task. It's by his power and might that we're enabled to serve the Lord as Christians. Let us then go forth in Christ's power in this new week, declaring his name as faithful prophets. Do so not only among one another, but especially among those who do not yet know Christ as Savior and Lord. Back up your profession by leading a holy and godly life as faithful priests. Deny the sinful pleasures of the flesh and live thankful lives to the glory of God. As kings, do not allow sin and Satan to rule you, but live fruitful lives under the reign of Christ's word and spirit. So fulfill Christ's calling, so live as Christians to God's glory and for your neighbor's good. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from hymn 50. Hymn 50 is about the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. We'll do that standing. Thank you.